You're listening to Dramas Over Flowers with Saya, Anissa, and Borama. Hi, I'm Saya. I'm Anissa. And I'm Borama. And welcome to a very special episode where we will be talking about Crash Landing on You um, and also my deeply nerdy academic thesis about K dramas. <laughs> Wasn't hard to tell that your eyes were following me. Was like we were under a spell, and anyone could see. To say goodbye before we had a chance to see what we we held in our hands, what it could have been. Oh, I'm so excited we're finally doing this. Yeah, <laughs> it feels a bit strange to be doing it after so much time, but we also thought that, you know, given the cultural impact of this show and sort of the many things that have happened in the world and in K-drama land in the last three years would be an interesting time to talk about it as well. Mm -hmm. um, also, my grandma just watched it, and so I've been kind of like half re-watching it as she watches it, so it's fresh in my mind and heart. So, Mama guys. So <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no. So, I um, haven't done a rewatch for at least a year. I've rewatched this exactly once, um, midway through last year, I think. And this drama is one of those rare ones where on a rewatch, you're still catching stuff, especially because I've read up more like after the first time I watched this drama. And I remember thinking at that point, like I got like really hyped up at that point and I and I, I kind of wanted to like I, I, I was hoping that we did an episode immediately because I, I would like forget all the scenes like soon but it didn't happen however I just I think I had a deeper appreciation for the drama after, after the second watch because in the first watch I really loved it but the the tiny things that didn't quite work for me were not they, I, I didn't feel the hype that everybody else seemed to feel for um, crush running on you Mm, interesting. The fact that it's like like one of the biggest like gateway dramas <laughs> around that time is um, amazing, but also slightly odd to me. Like in, in when I was watching that drama for the first time, because I was like, this is great. This is really, really good writing. This is really fresh. Like they're giving us stuff we haven't seen on uh, Korean TV before. And also like there are so many parallels we can draw with like stories from our own countries and all of that stuff. But but is it like gateway level? And I kind of didn't get it. But in my second rewatch, I did. And weirdly, um, since then, I've had uh, three other friends who have watched Crash Landing on you and gotten really into K-dramas. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I'm better placed now to be doing this recording than I would have <laughs> been like, I don't know, two years back. Right. Mm. Yeah, I agree that it's actually potentially a more interesting time to talk about it three years down the line. Is it three years? Yeah, three yeah, years down yeah. the line than it would have been to talk about it immediately. Because I mean you were we're gonna talk a lot you're going to talk a lot more about this the cultural impact, but also because the kind of story it told is actually really different to the general um K drama repertoire, right? Mm. Like it I can't think of another drama like it 
before it or since. Yeah. Have you rewatched it, Saya? No. <laughs> so I No, no, it's totally fine. I usually never watch re I I don't think I think the only time that I've watched rewatched shows just purely because I wanted to um have been maybe just Coffee Prince. I don't think that I've rewatched anything else unless I was watching it like with with someone that I had recommended it to, which is like a little bit different. You're just kind of like watching it again to be on that journey with them. But of course, because I was writing about this for my master's thesis, I did like I didn't rewatch it fully while I was writing, but I watched a lot of scenes multiple times. Um, and then last year, my sister watched it for the first time. Finally, like I think her she I think she was saying like she watched it like episode one a couple of times and she was just like bored. Um, but she finally started watching it in earnest. Like she loved it. And I kind of rewatched it with her. Uh, like me and my mom kind of rewatched it with her. And then like my grandmother was just watching it, kind of rewatched parts with her. And like it really holds up to multiple rewatches. Even like knowing what's going to happen and knowing the dialogue and knowing all the story beats, it doesn't it actually kind of makes it better because you can feel right. From episode, you know, one or two or three, when you first see these people, you know, come into each other's orbits, the fact that you know how everything's going to end up, like, adds this additional layer of, like, emotion and, like, pathos and, and like, you, you just, you you already love them so much, so then you care so much even from, yeah. like, episode one, whereas before you're just like, okay, this is a weird drama, like, why she's, like, crash landing in North Korea, this is kind of ridiculous, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then you see these people again, and I think this is one of the re- things that makes us so special, is that by the time you finish the show, you have so much affection, not just for the leads, but for, like, all the ladies in that village in North Korea were like all like MVPs, honestly, like those actresses <laughs> such did such an amazing job. And like you've built a relationship to like, you know, the, the soldiers on Jung Hyuk's crew and like all of these characters have become so special to you. Then when you go back for a rewatch, you're just like, oh, I missed you. You know, you're like, yeah. you're so like excited to see them and you're happy. So it's like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm like explaining it in a good way, but I think that's one of the things that makes a, a drama like have rewatch value is that you really want to see those people again. It's not just about yeah. the story. Mm-hmm. And especially because whenever you start a new show, especially one that has quite like a sprawling cast, there's always the that period where you kind of don't know who anyone is. And it mm. takes you a while to remember, oh, this person is this person. This person is that person. And I can... Although I haven't rewatched it, I can imagine that if I were to go into a rewatch, because you're emotionally already there, exactly like you've described, there's things that you would find certainly in the beginning that you didn't appreciate, you wouldn't have been able to appreciate the first time. The uh, aspect of Rashani on you that has always stood out to me um, is the fact that you said of uh, Saya that it, it's a very unconventional drama. But it's an unconventional drama that uses all the conventions of drama land. Like it, it practically has a checklist of all drama land tropes and just goes yeah. by like tick, 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 tick. It is a Pakistan drama. It's a Pakistan <laughs> drama, but it always puts like a slightly new spin on it. It's not even a spin. It's just like the context of it makes it fresh. Like there is this one aspect that I remember where um, you have. Uh, 
so, uh, Sonia's character, like Seri, uh, so Seri is like living in uh, the captain's house, right? And all of the village women are like, yeah, well, she's, you know, he doesn't seem very responsive to you. He doesn't seem very pleased with you. So she, she has to like establish herself as the loved fiance. So <laughs> she practically like corners him as like, but why heard pat my head right now? I'm going to settle down right here. So he starts like sort of awkwardly patting her head and she's like, oh, and like pushes him away. He's like super surprised. It's just this <laughs> really cute exchange. And she's doing all of this stuff as kind of a performance because the ladies in the village are watching and sort of like, th- there are two different layers going on. On the one hand, Seri's like, I must establish in front of them that I'm like, the legit thing, the real thing. But also the other aspect of it is like, it's it's um, it's one of those, you know, marriage of convenience tropes, like where you're sort of performing affection and then affection grows from there. And it's, mm. it's just, it's so familiar and tropey, but it's also just, it works so well. Yeah, yeah. Like that's one of the things that I put in the outline is like, in what ways is this, a very special drama and in what ways is this a very conventional drama because you're so right Borma like there are so many really conventional tropes and like I think this is like the mastery of Park Jian. like she's just so good at this point she's like a master of her craft is that you you have all of these tropes and they're tropes that work for a reason and so even on their own they already have power but then you've she's put them into this context of like a situation where everything is heightened just by the very nature of the stakes are so high, right? So they're Mm. in this fake dating relationship. But if they get found out, it's not just going to be embarrassing. She's going to die. And he's probably going to go to jail or something. You know, like, so it's got this additional layer of... And I think this is another thing where, like, even... Like, there's many, many times where they say goodbye to each other. Um, And even the drama even, like, references that right at the end, right? Where... And I mean, y'all like full spoilers. Obviously, this is a spoil the act, but like just be warned <laughs> if you haven't, if you didn't like look at the description. But like at, in the very last scene where, you know, he's about to be sent back by the NIS to North Korea and her mom comes to her in the hospital and is like, aren't you going to go and see, see him off? Like, don't you want to say goodbye? And she's like, we've already said everything there is to say. Like, what's the point? And obviously, like, she still goes. But I would normally feel really annoyed by a drama that has so many partings between the leads, like, you know, there's so many times where he's like, oh, here's a way for you to go home. And they go through that whole thing of like saying goodbye. And every single time, either it doesn't work out or they see each other again and then they have to part again. And like, but it's not annoying at all because mm. in that's this the point. specific context, yeah, that is the yeah. point. The uncertainty is the point. The The separation is the point. And the fact that you can't, ever really permanently be together even if you steal some happiness and some moments like that's the whole point and so like it's it just it's just so good it's just so good I know it just (laughs) hurts so good and like the the impossibility of or the seeming impossibility of the happy ending that also like right from the beginning it sort of underscores the emotion of the entire show right even before anything has happened. Because you know what show you're watching. Mm. You're watching a romance. You're mm. watching a, a romance across a border that can't be breached, yeah. no matter where you go. So, yeah, that, that it's actually kind of genius to be able to put that emotion literally from the very first moment of the show. Yeah, I like it. There's no other... I honestly feel sorry for people who, like, 
this was their first drama because like where do you go from here <laughs> I know no. like it's so good and and like what other conflict is going to feel this life or death between a romantic couple like this is literally life or death and also like it's impossible so then if you move from this to a story where like I don't know his mother doesn't like her or something it's just, <laughs> it's just not the same like you just don't have the same stakes the only other place I can think of where you can get that same sense of impossibility would be a time travel drama. Oh, yes, because I'm That's watching Sambio yeah. one day right now and it's and it's building up, man. It's building up. <laughs> I have this other um, aspect of law that I, I didn't realize when it was airing that this is something that I was enjoying so much for this reason. The age of the protagonists. That mm. both of oh, them are mature true. adults. Yeah. I don't think this, you know, the meeting, the falling in love, all of the partings and the compromise that gives them their kind of happily ever after, um, or not a happily ever after, but like a happy for now. Happily sometimes. Happily sometimes. I don't think it would have worked at all if they had gone with like some, you know, 20 year olds or like really they're just very young inexperienced yeah. people it's the weight of their responsibilities the mm. people that they're carrying on their back pretty much mm -hmm. the lives that are entangled with them that gives their decisions so much heft mm. yeah and and even just the age of the actors mm. and, ha and the, the experience and the gravitas and the acting ability that they bring to their roles you know and and just uh, I mean, the chemistry, too. We can talk oh, about no. that later. Oh, no. but, you know, you're so right. Like, it's such a good point that you bring up because they have they have both lived a life. They are already complete people. And so that makes it even more difficult for them when they crash land into each other. <laughs> I'm sorry. Please forgive me. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. Um, yeah, like, like it's it takes that idea of like, meeting someone later on in life when you've already got so many things already like set and settled and how difficult it is to merge your life with another person when you are like, say, you know, 40 years old. It just takes that to a whole nother level. Yeah. Yeah. Was there anything? I mean, we, we've talked a lot about what we loved. Is there anything that we didn't like about it? Like, is there something that you guys were not as happy about or that bothered you? Well, actually, the fact that I don't remember like everything in as much detail as I did a year back is kind of helping the fact that I don't recall everything. <laughs> but also, if I really love a drama, I rarely end up remembering the small things that I nitpick over, <laughs> just like the larger points yeah. that don't always make sense to me. So one of the things that I really didn't like was uh, Kim Jong-hyun's um, ending in the drama. Um, actually, Kim Jong-hyun's entire character was a bit off to me. Can I, like, I read did something not understand to the purpose you before you go into that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so because I don't remember... While I was watching this drama, I did make notes as I was watching it. So I've got those open in front of me. And this just made me laugh. So I'm going to share it with you. It's episode 12. Lol, Sungjun's tragic backstory. They were destitute, so they emigrated to the UK where his dad died and mother remarried and he was sent to boarding school. Hello, 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 hello. His mum must have 
married someone very rich. No one else can afford boarding school in England. <laughs> I completely forgot about his tragic backstory. Wait, wait, was this the real backstory or like the fake backstory? His actual real backstory. Oh my God, how is this even a tragic backstory? <laughs> I had no memory of this. Me yeah. neither, but it's just, it's very funny to see this now. <laughs> but you know, I think that's also your best Kim Jong-un, right? I, I mean, I it mean, did really no. work for me, but I want to hear why it didn't work for you, Borma. So the best Kim Jong-un is Mr. Queen. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry, I didn't but, finish that. But I honestly think that Kim Jong-un's, like, the, the character itself probably had, like, some good use. For one thing, I really loved how he was not even anywhere near the second lead. Like, he, he was not even running, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that race. But also just, like, the glib exchange between Sonia Jean and, you know, this guy. It just, like, <laughs> like she has that. his measure so quickly. It's yep. just... It was, I just loved it. I love that. That was great. Um, but also, there are certain aspects of the politics of North Korea that his entrance uh, to the country um, sort of went over that I appreciated. You know, the fact that he was basically a con man who was running away mm-hmm. and like how he was establishing himself in this country and like his new identity and all of that stuff. Like, uh, it just like those little pieces of um, how the system works outside the system, so to speak. Um, that was like the only aspect of it that I found workable in the script. Like I liked it. But his character was so jarring. Like he did very, a lot of very unnecessary things. Like the 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 highest of which was like, getting himself killed for no reason. Like, he could have just let himself get arrested, go to South Korea, like, serve his, like, sentence. Why die? Like, I don't... I Why die? I just... It was so stupid. For me, like, to be quite honest, I cannot remember the exact plot details that... I All I remember is the guys who were chasing him caught her and they were threatening her life and so he went to save her and then he got killed like that's really all I can remember in terms of like what the sort of the plot reasons were for his death but like on an emotional level and on like a story level even though I hate it and I was destroyed by it I understand why they killed him because I think what the drama is saying here is that like you really can't have a happy ending between someone who's from North Korea and someone who's from South Korea. Like you, like, I think that's what the drama is trying to say is that like the happy ending, the sort of bittersweet ish happy ending that Seri and Junghyuk get, even though it's like very, very limited is really because of how extremely privileged they both are. And so for anybody else, even though she comes from a really well-off family in Pyongyang and he's like super rich with all of his like con man money, even that like it's it's not going to work out. And so like I can understand that point that the dramas and and I don't and I like I can appreciate the fact that like we didn't get a happy ending for both the couples because I think that would have been like very unrealistic and it would have kind of broken the realism of the story. I mean, it's not a realistic story. I'm not saying it is, but like it is somewhat grounded in the real world, you know? I don't know. Like I usually hate sad endings, but like this really worked for me. I, and I was I was devastated by it, but I I got it. 
Okay, so let me rephrase that. Not why die, but why die like that? Because he literally didn't need to. He he took his guns, went out where he had no cover and just got shot to death. Like the way the scene was set up, he did not need to do that. Mm. No, but it's also, I was fine with these two not having their happily ever after. As you said, it would have been too unrealistic for both couples to get like some kind of uh, happy ending. But it's the way this couple was, it, it had nothing to do with them being North Korean, South Korean. He literally got chased and, and gunned down because of his corrupt past. So it, it again didn't have anything to do with like the separation of nations. It, it wasn't that. Like his tragedy But I mean, his was, corrupt past was the only reason that he was even in that country to begin with, right? Sure. So he could have just left. Like, <laughs> never to come back. <laughs> it could have worked. <laughs> Don't you also think that there's something intrinsic to that character? Like, he was a person who sort of bled tragedy with every step he took. He certainly thought so. That's what I'm saying. The way that he thought of himself. Let's imagine that, yeah, it might have been a futile and unnecessary death. But also, I believe that that is what he chose for himself did you have you guys watched butch butch cassidy and the sundance kid no, no. i haven't i figure in his head he thought it was that final scene of the movie right he's the hero in the movie that he stars in in his head yeah because right? that's exactly what like it's just a, uh, hmm. a tragic Listen, hero yeah sure. i think that's there's definitely an element of that in how he sees himself and i think there's also an element of um not from his own character motivations, but sort of like as a character archetype, he is that guy who has been doing bad things for a very long time. And then he's, his redemption is in making this like ultimate sacrifice for the person he loves. Like he's been doing selfish things and then finally he does this like ultimate act of unselfishness. And so like I can see why the how the writer saw his character in that sense, you know, as sort of like being an appropriate ending to his story. Mm. You know what I think? I think it's because he's a civilian who had killed. And like in drama land, unless you're in the police or the military, you cannot kill and still like go unpunished. It's it's not even just like K-drama land. This is true of like Indian storytelling too. If you're a civilian and you have murdered, mm. you will die by the end of the That's a really story. good, yeah. That's a really <laughs> good point too. Yeah. Okay, so that that is like one of the things that has still stuck with me, like amongst the things I dislike. You know, I always think of um, one of the papers that I read in, uh, I can't remember if it was an undergrad or grad school about like, the main thing that gives a government its legitimacy is its exclusive dominion over killing. That's literally what gives the government its power. Like that's literally what separates the government from other institutions. Anissa's talked about this before. Oh, we talked about it in MIPS in um, our other podcast. I did, ah, yes, yes, I did. Yeah, I talked about it in Muslim in Plain Sight. But yeah, he's a. I cannot remember the name of the. Um, he's a. He's a black academic, and I. Mm. I will look up. I will try to find and look up his name if I can. But it's somewhere in my notes from like one of my classes. But it just stuck with me. Yeah, I mean, he, they do have an exclusive opinion over killing, and it's it's morally acceptable, even mm -hmm. when. Even when you don't, like, even when it's an encounter or, like, a, an unjustified killing, it's still, it's almost like their hands are washed because they have the uniform. Uh, because yep. it's not them killing, it's the state killing. So it's as mm -hmm. if, like, the individual 
accountability is not there. But if a civilian kills, that that has to be shown as un, like that has to be shown punished. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I because I could listen if you go back and watch his like that entire sequence where like uh, uh, before he dies, like their dynamic before that and then him coming to the rescue and all of that stuff. You, you would see what I mean. There is a there is a thread of there is no reason for this to be happening unless the writer just wanted him dead at the end of this. So I feel like that is like he was preordained to die at the end. That yeah. was the function of his character. Yeah. So it was just yeah. a question of how do we get him here, uh, or how does he take himself there? So, yeah. 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 I think for me, my only and this is really it's not even really a complaint. It's just kind of a minor issue but once i feel like the best of the drama is really when seri is in north korea and once she leaves um and even once you know jungyuk and the ducklings all come to south korea it <laughs> does become a much more conventional you know romance melodrama it's still good um and it's still you know is is a little different in some ways, but but it does end up having a lot more of the trappings of like, you know, a, a table romance with succession politics and the fight to be with the one you really love despite all of that. And I mean, there's additional layer of like, he's being hunted by the NIS and this other bad guy from North Korea and all. I mean, it isn't just that, but the vibes are very much like typical romance K-drama. And so, like, it's just, it doesn't quite have the same, like, magic and melancholy and, like, just, like, heart achingness that it had when they were in North Korea. And I think, like, it recovers that um, in the last couple of episodes. And especially that scene where they're going back is just, like, an electric and beautiful scene um, yeah. when they're at the at the border. When when they have to send them back to North Korea, but like I do feel like it loses a little bit of that. What makes it so special when they come back to South Korea? It's a very small complaint, honestly. No, 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 it doesn't no, no. bother I, me. I get that. I, oh, honestly, uh, I I enjoyed it because it was the culmination of all of the you know the ducklings' anticipation, like their the the idea they had built up in their head of South Korea, and then to go to South Korea and like see it. It's almost like it's almost fan servicey to uh, international K drama fans. Mm-hmm. They're like, here's an idea of Korea that you've built up, but look. We are just as great as you thought we were. But also that at the end of the day, home is home. Like, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Which is why all of them went back, right? It's right. wasn't but even like, a question. The Sometimes I think when you're looking at this from the outside, people don't think about having to make that choice, right? Mm-hmm. I think the closest we come to it is as immigrants. Like choosing where to to place that home but like for example displaced people that just the hugeness of displacement and also even if you're not living in what we would call a developed country for example the idea that sometimes people look down on the idea that you can choose to go back to a place that is like more humble than Mm. that but like to emotionally understand that you have to think about why, like, what is in a place that makes you go back to it? Like, home, you know, 
even if it's a humble village in North Korea where you don't have electricity all the time and all of those things. Like home yeah. means something really deep that we don't think about a lot, maybe. And and also, I mean, especially in this particular case, it's it's not like they they don't really have even if they wanted to stay, they really can't because the people mm-hmm. that they love and their families if they don't come back, their their families are going to be punished, right? So they're not really free to make that choice to begin with. Right. Um, but I think your point is is still valuable, and it's very true. Yeah. I wanted to ask you what you thought about um, Oman Sok's villain hmm. as the kind of stand-in for everything that's wrong. I have thoughts. Yeah. Tell us your thoughts first, and then I'll respond to them. I thought that was a cop-out. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because uh, what the creators of the drama did was like instead of um, and this point actually I was waiting for you to start talking about your thesis because you made the really good point that um, another drama which you're going to talk about soon uh, where you've drawn parallels doesn't deal directly with what the actual reason is for the split between North and South Korea um, and. Crash Landing on You does this very heavy thing of dealing with the emotional fallout of that split but also doesn't directly talk about the actual reasons for the split. Mm. And one of the things that, like one of the glaring things that you uh, see happening in the drama is uh, nobody mentions Kim Jong-un. It's like almost a thing that like does not, it's a layer that does not exist as if that entire political sphere is like somewhere obscured by clouds and just nobody sees it, nobody thinks about it. All you see is his little face on that little pin that they have to wear all the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's that's, that's like, that's the only presence of Kim Jong-un. Can I just ask you a question here? I don't know if you can answer it. Do you think that that is because it's like one of those, like it's a given everybody knows or because of fearing to approach the name at all like is it something that didn't need to be said I'll come to that in a second but like the reason I I started with that was because when it comes to this drama's villain he's a relative like he's lower in the ranks right like he's even lower than Captain Ryu um it's it's not it's not like this guy has a lot of powers. He's not I mean, lower. He's not lower than Captain Ree, but like he's lower than Captain Ree's dad, which kind of yeah. makes him lower in terms of social ranking, but not in terms of actual military ranking. Um, the reason this guy is, he's kind of like the symbol of corruption and like he does like side dealings and he deals with like arms and he's, he's basically harmful to the North Korean state. So... He's not just a villain, you know, of, you know, risking our protagonist's life, but like he needs to be taken out because he is a threat to our hero's nation um, because of his corrupt leanings. And that is, again, there's definitely reasons to defend that choice, but especially because this drama is so much more about like the emotions of, of, of nationhood and also, you know, these two falling in love. Um, but it's just that there is like literally no reference to what the state's choices um, do to regular people like trying to do their private trades. Like you have like that market scene where, you know, the, 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 the lady with who's selling the cosmetics has mm. like uh, a special rack of like contraband stuff. Um, 
why does she have to hide those like you know it's it's almost the, th- the thing is that it's almost assumed that people know all of these things and of course we kind of can guess immediately with the fact that the state really um enforces their laws and like enforces it brutally and uh, a lot of the times when you're enforcing a certain dogmatic um rule of law people sort of do stuff in the black market which risks their lives and yes this one villain is evil and he's doing stuff shady stuff and he's doing illegal things but like there are plenty of people who are working around him or with him who are also risking their life while doing this shady stuff they they're, they're just not they're not just going to go to prison and like serve out a sentence they're probably going to be put to death if they're found out it's like it's the fact that everything they these people are doing there are the stakes are higher because of the state they live in and that's not quite dealt with at all so i mean it it's fine the villain was fine but it felt like a bit of cop out for that mm, reason that's interesting i I actually didn't feel that way at all. So it's really interesting to me that you felt that way because for me I thought that it's kind of like what Saya is saying that the presence of the state is so overpowering and for me the fact that nobody really talks about it is kind of underscores just how powerful it is. And it, and I think like to me what what worked so well was it made it feel more realistic because you have these people who really are dealing with the consequences of the way that um you know the government represses them in so many ways whether it's like the you know how they um how they they lose their power you know and they never know when the power is going to go out or like you know you can get these like surprise inspections of your home and you know like there's that scene where Kim Sang's character is when when the order comes to you know inspect the village she has to inspect the village she doesn't have any choice so she's literally going into the homes of her friends and neighbors and calling them out for you know like having a rice cooker and and like her neighbors like pleading with her like don't tell on me i'm really sorry i won't you know you know like so it comes through in these little details and i think it's the subtlety of the writing where having it come in through all these small details and just like the fear that anybody has of like getting found out or of of it, like for me i felt that weight And I don't think and I think like I can understand why they did it that way, because you can tell that they're really trying to have like a nuanced portrayal of life in North Korea, whereas it would have been very easy for them to make all the government officials like like villainous in a very like one note way. Mm. Um, I do agree that like having this villain that is acting outside of the system and who is also an enemy of the North Korean state is a little bit of a cop out. I think that's a really good point. But I think narratively, if you have this nation state as the big bad, there is no way to have a satisfying conclusion to that villain's arc where like the hero can win. So I think the reason that they did it this way is that the villain ends up being Oman Suk's character and then you're able to have this like satisfying showdown where the hero is able to you know defeat him and so like i think that like narrative satisfaction is why they made that choice but i agree that it's like a little bit of a cop out because as you said it it kind of lets the the government off the hook in some ways 
it's an interesting choice to position the government not as neutral but as different like it's different north korea is different from south korea and not its moral opposite which a lot of other dramas do um as a north korea being like the good yeah. side and, and i like um, that sorry south korea being the good side and north korea being the bad side so i liked that they, yeah exactly i liked that they approached it with a certain level of neutrality to begin with it's different they have differences and they almost accept that these differences are irreconcilable and it's um it, what it does help do though is it never positions the characters in north korea as like good or bad like if you're supporting this nation's politics then you're all bad is how we tend to see mm-hmm. uh you know geopolitical anything everything like the entire nation is bad there is no you know individuality left that's kind of how we see things um they kind of took that out entirely and i think that's one of the reasons that's one of the reasons people were able to watch this drama and like hu- like actually have the characters humanized because the drama wasn't focusing on the politics i mean i was complaining about that like 2 seconds back but it, this is actually also one of its strengths and also what it doesn't do is at the end of the day it doesn't ask captain ree to like choose you know like choose to side with do you agree with communism or democracy it doesn't it doesn't neither the heroine nor the story asks captain ree to do that because they seem to almost understand that it doesn't matter what political side he would have chosen because he's in no state to choose a political side that is not even an aspect that he allows himself to like he's a very well read man he clearly has very clear thoughts about the world but this is not something he will explore further because he is constrained by the mm-hmm. nation his family lives in the rules he must abide by like there are like these things are so integral to his character it's almost like he's constantly walking around with a cage and it's yeah i mean i don't know i like you you cannot tell me that this spoiled brat kim jong chun's character what was his name goob chung jun was like a tragic character when you have this guy like where he's like he's just like when you have hyun bin being hyun bin it's just like yeah. <laughs> yeah kneeling in his garden and telling beautiful things to the tomato plant oh. as he thinks about her oh my god that scene i will never forget that scene but you know um that's like a really good segue into talking about um what i wanted to bring up in my thesis which um we will link in the show notes and if you're interested in reading my like super nerdy long <laughs> book it's very really interesting. interesting yeah very interesting yeah so we're going to be talking about like page 42 to 53 roughly um which is the part where i talk about the whole thesis is basically about like cross border relationships and i look at south korea north korea and also india and pakistan but this section is about the king two hearts which came out in 2012 if you haven't seen it and crash landing on you. And I highly recommend. I mean, I'm going to complain a little bit about The King Two Hearts, but I still <laughs> highly recommend it. It's a really good drama. Isengi and um Hajiwon. Hajiwon, thank you, are so good in it. Um and it's it's beautiful, but it's very much so the premise is you have this military officer from North Korea, which is Hajiwon's character, and you have Isengi is the, you know, the crown prince of um this fictional constitutional monarchy 
in South Korea, which they decide to have a political marriage between the two of them in order, you know, as like a gesture of goodwill between the two nations. And so the whole drama is really about how can they, they are like avatars of their nations in every scene. The whole time they are, you know, representing their own country in a diplomatic mission and their love story almost becomes like secondary to that. And the and the threat is always external. You know, it's the U.S., it's China, it's Bungu, who is this, you know, um, really venal capitalist evil arms dealer that is originally from South Korea, but he all he wants is like to see the world burn. And I mean, like, who even knows what he wants, you know? So there, you have this like huge external threat. And so that means that they can only really operate as like nations in this context of like nation states in like a geopolitical conflict. Whereas in Crash Landing on You, it's not a conflict between governments and neither of them are representing their own nation. They are actually almost like held hostage by the nations they live in and they're trying to act beyond those borders and cross those borders and and trying to find a way that to make those borders not matter. And in the end, they really cannot do that, you know, and that's why it's so sad. And it really does go into that, like the emotional fallout of of partition, which is something that like no one ever talks about, really. Like we talk about it, you know, in families that have been harmed and 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 hurt by by partition and i come from you know like a family that has gone through that myself it is something that is like a trauma that kind of just like lives in your family you might not really talk about it you might not really know about it if you're like part of the younger generation um and it just becomes taken over by these like political narratives about you know who's threatening who and who's who might be bombing who and who has nuclear weapons and are we at war are we not at war and like with north and south korea like they're they're always at war like it's an armistice technically these two countries are still at war and so and they have this like highly militarized border that is the cause for people to you know be required to serve in the military like it really disrupts people's lives and this drama really looks at so like what's the what are the consequences of this on like ordinary regular people's lives you know it really like zooms in on that and that's what I love so much about it and it doesn't do it in a way of for a South Korean production and yes I mean it does portray the South Korean government as the good guys like Never have I seen intelligence agents who are this fluffy and nice in my life. Like, right. completely unrealistic. <laughs> but at the same time, they are trying to humanize the North Koreans. Like, they, there is so much variety and subtlety in the way they portray all the North Korean characters. They're not all the same, you know? Like, and I think obviously that's because one of the, you know, one of the directors and who co wrote the script is. A North Korean defector who used to, you know, I think he used to be, he used to work in film for the North Korean government, like making propaganda, I think. And so you have this very intimate experience of like what it is actually like to live there and someone who actually, you know, because I know this is, you know, it's on Netflix and it's produced, you know, with the international audience in mind, but it also is ultimately a domestic product. And North Korean defectors, 
um, and North Korean refugees, they don't have a good time in South Korea. Like mm. they face so much discrimination. They can't get jobs. A lot of them are, you know, ghettoized and and like they're kind of forced to be separate from the rest of society. Like they, you would think that people would be kind to them um, if you think about it from like an ideological perspective of like, oh, well, you left the enemy and you came here and you're acknowledging that like our side is is right and is, you know, quote unquote better. But in reality, like that's not how it works. They're just, you know, a lot of times they're just treated as the other um, and as like unwanted immigrants who are using up the resources of the nation. I mean, it's a very old story. So like, I I think it's good to also remember that context of just portraying North Koreans as human beings. I don't know if that's going to have an impact on how North Koreans are treated in South Korea. I don't know. Maybe that's like too idealistic, but I think it matters, right? Like representation matters. So that's a thing that I think about also, you know, like a lot of the other movies and television shows that I saw that I watched while I was writing my thesis were very like, you know, North Koreans are the enemy and South Koreans are like these like amazing heroes. And like the fact that it's not about governments and like big P politics, it allows it to not fall into those tropes. It's funny. Hyunbin even like stars in one of those movies that does that, which is <laughs> really funny to me. And it's also very interesting that like they chose to make the North Korean characters that she encounters first, like a group of soldiers. Mm. Because in pretty much every other, I mean, with the exception of the King Two Hearts, where the the heroine is a North Korean soldier, every other drama or TV, sh uh, um, drama or film that I've seen where there's some kind of North Korean plot, the North Korean soldiers are just like cannon fodder for the story and for the hero and, you know, the good guys. And like this, this drama never does that. And I want to give it props for that. Yeah. Also the, in the Kingdom Hearts, Hajiwan was like the best soldier in the entire country. And once South Korea took her, like I bet North Korea is like completely different. <laughs> she was like the smartest of them. Like she could strategize the best. She was everything. Like at, at one point she was just doing like major negotiations it, 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 which is also like a very old fashioned trope of like, you know, the, the one good person in the enemy that you can actually talk to and everybody else is too unreasonable. Mm. Yeah. And the other thing is also the other difference between these two stories is Hajiwan's character, Hanga, it's a very traditional, old fashioned kind of you leave your father's family and you come into your husband's family and you have to give up everything that you I mean, it's like a very extreme version of that. She can never go home. So I want to read this quote, actually, from the drama because it still sticks in my mind. So I'm just going to read, actually, this paragraph, if you guys don't mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Although the drama is about two people coming together in order to become conduits through which North and South can find common ground, it's never an equal relationship. Hanga's journey is that of entering and becoming part of South Korea. As her father leaves her in Seoul for her engagement, he bows tearfully to Jaya, which is Isengi's character, and asks him to teach her well and promises she will be obedient. In his goodbye text to Hanga, he tells her explicitly, no matter what, follow South Korean ways. From now on, you're a South Korean. 
Her first days in the palace are full of lessons about the South's language, customs, economics, and culture, all exacerbated by the crushing weight of royal protocol and the ever-present threat of a turn in public opinion. The Queen Mother even says to Hanga that it's better to say nothing than to be caught making a mistake. As a commoner herself, the Queen Mother says that at first she lived as though I was dead, prostrating myself. But you're not just a commoner, but a North Korean. Shouldn't you lower yourself even more? Oh, Which is like... stuck. It's dark, right? And yeah. like, literally, she has to give up her entire identity in order to be accepted and please her mother-in-law, her actual mother-in-law, and also like the entire South Korean nation who is her mother-in-law, you know? Yeah. <laughs> kind of reminds me of how when we were talking to your aunt for Muslim in Plain Sight, about her having to renounce her Pakistani citizenship in order to serve in the Australian Senate. But yeah. it's just asking yeah. too much of people. Like, why do we demand that from people to like slaughter themselves at the altar of nationalism? Yeah. Too painful. It, it, it's the same thing we ask women to do at, uh, have yes. for like yeah. years. Like you have to give up your entire family and your identity yeah. connected to that family and prioritize your husband's family. Right. And like, you know, in Confucianism, how a woman is meant to be her husband's shadow and all of that. Also, it, it's always interesting to to see how, um, you know, that school of thought was used to justify, because we know that like when, you know, Goryeo became like chosen, it, like there was like the whole matrilineal um, way of life turned into the patrilineal one. It's not like patriarchy didn't exist before. Of course it did. But like women's family had value. I mean, if you wanted to take the bride away from a woman's family, the like the prospect of the groom had to come and, and sort of serve at the bride's family's like farm for a few years, sort of like compensating them for the labor that he's taking away when he takes his bride home to his own uh, farm. It's, I didn't know that. <laughs> th this was part of Goryeo culture. And now then you move into Choshan and that is very much you know, it doesn't matter what happens to the bride's family. Why did you have a girl child? Yeah. That's, Chosun yeah. was way more, um, more into the Confucianism. Women. Yeah. And so, and I mean, nowadays, it's really not something that is practiced anymore. But obviously, those those things I linger, mean, right? You know how Korean women feel about Chosok the festival and all right. of like the responsibilities and like the, the labor mm -hmm. that is put on the women of the family. Yeah. To not the even the woman, even the wife. The, the wife, yeah, of course. Right. Like It's not even her even, ancestors. Yeah, exactly, exactly. To the point where you have politicians making statements about like how that can't just be like the wife's labor anymore. Because right. a lot of women have been opting out of it, haven't they? Yeah. I, I, I always mean, love that, consequences, that, <laughs> that conversation that happens in, uh, because this is our first life. Like the, the equivalence of labor between the man mm. and the woman. That was, that was just, mm. you know it's in our own cultures too right like it's not it's a it's a global yeah. phenomenon it's it's not definitely not you know limited I, I do feel it's less less a thing sort of in this country certainly but that whole sense of a woman belongs to her husband's family that's very running strong in my country for sure i mean in bangladesh for sure and south asia in general south asia for general and especially like the 
the strata of society that I live in, it's pretty modern, it's urban. And I don't see that in uh, around my families and friends and like just like my immediate social circle. But I absolutely cannot deny that it's it's a reality for like probably 90% mm-hmm. of the country that mm-hmm. I don't see because they are in the villages, they are in the smaller towns. And yeah, yeah. no, it's absolutely true from, you know, what I know about village life in Pakistan um, and also in India, like from, you know, friends that I have who have visited and, and have experience going there. It's a very different experience than being in the big, you know, the big urban centers where people are basically living in modernity kind of, you know, post-modernity. And and these are like also in European cultures. It hasn't been very long, you know, that the, you know, since these things were sort of like as a culture, people have started to say, oh, like we don't want that. Like in the 1800s, they were still debating whether a woman has a soul in France. So it's it's not like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> women didn't get the right to own property and vote in where I live until like the 20th century. So it's just like, unfortunately, this is a this is a global hangover of misogyny that we're we're all still dealing with. Dealing with the ways it's mutating as well. <laughs> in in the story, when you have um Hajiwan's character, like it completely without anybody even ever debating the matter. Nobody ever asks if like Prince Jeha can like come over to North Korea and live here, please. That is just like before I think I think their engagement was decided before his uh, older brother passed away. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so he was it, still the prince. So it's it's never a matter of like, you know, um, maybe you can give this one to us. <laughs> it's always assumed that Haji Wan's character is the one who will go to South Korea and live there um, with her husband's family. Um, and yeah, so the, the rest of the story kind of goes in the same paternalistic vein um, uh, in, in the drama. And as you pointed out um, in, in, the, uh, in your thesis, they were also very careful about kind of avoiding um, talking about any of the issues, keeping these two nations um, unfriendly towards each other. They, it's almost like they had like a general caricature of of like a, a cartoon version of North Korea. Like it's this. a very simplified version of the politics, right? You know, like there, it's so much more complicated. And like, yes. Of course, external forces were very much implicated in dividing these two countries in the first place. And of course, in a lot of ways, South Korea and North Korea are like constrained by the fact that they have these much more powerful allies that are very much interested in maintaining the status quo because there's like this tension between, you know, like China and the United States. And I mean, that's that's all true, but it it really just kind of erases all of the local context and the power that, you know, these and it, and it really just simplifies it as like, oh, well, we just have to, you know, use this political marriage and, you know, get back on the same side and it'll be OK. And and I mean, that's just that's just an oversimplification of of the situation. And the drama is much more interested in making these two people heroes for their own nations in a way so Mm. you know you have this like final confrontation in the last episode and it basically becomes like a standoff where um they're both basically willing to die for their for their you know to keep the peace 
and that's like what's being asked of them ultimately is to is to die in order to you know for their for their countries basically mm. and that's kind of the ultimate heroism for them whereas crash landing on you doesn't see that as a justified sacrifice on behalf of the nation in my opinion do people die yes absolutely but it's not seen as something noble and and something that you're you're doing on the on behalf of the nation it's a tragedy that is brought on by an unnecessary separation and it's just like that difference me- makes crash landing on you like much the superior drama in my opinion i do feel like with crash landing on you that without actually explicitly saying it it was critical of the political situation just oh, by, yeah, even absolutely. by its complete absence like the absence itself was very eloquent in how how they viewed the the situation that created this context in the first place yeah and it's also like i i feel like in whereas in the king two hearts there's like this sort of simplified version of the political situation that they're like constantly interacting with in crash landing on you they're not necessarily constantly interacting with that nor is it explicitly described but the weight of that political situation is they can never escape it even in the most like lighthearted moments like I mentioned this in, in, um, in the thesis, but like there's that one moment where like they've started to have feelings for each other and she's his fake fiance. And she's hanging out at his house, but then he has to like go drop off his real fiance at home. And she's kind of mad about that. So like she's been drinking. And then when he comes back, she's taken her beer cans and made a line across <laughs> the living room. And she's like, that's the 38th parallel. You can't cross it or it's going to cause a war. And it's a joke, but it's also but not. it's not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so like, there's this underlying thread of like the futility of the situation and also like, okay, so, you know, 60, 70 years have passed. Do the particulars of why it happened even matter at this point when you're dealing with the consequences, right? So it's not like dismissing the complexities and the particulars, but it's asking you to look at like, you know, what has this done to us? Was it worth it? Are, like, what are we, are we willing to do anything to solve this or are we just going to be in this like endless stalemate you know that that scene at the end which is one of my favorite scenes where jung hyuk and the boys are about to leave and then seri shows up and she starts running towards him and he's like oh my god like you just got to the hospital stop running so then he runs back across the border to get to her and like everyone pulls out their guns and like points them at each other and so then it's like this really tense standoff and it's just like such a good illustration of like why this is so stupid because you have these two people who just want to like love each other and everybody is like ready to kill you know like why because he just crossed this one little border you know It does kind of leave you speechless. <laughs> do you guys mind if I read this one other section? Of course not. No, please do. You know I would be happy if you read all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to bore anybody. <laughs> Let me just decide which section. Yeah, so this is... Um, there's this one scene. It's one of the times... I think this might be the time that he actually sends her home. So here it is. 
Despite Jung-hyuk and Seri knowing from the beginning that they mustn't fall in love and can never live a normal life together, the drama is not fatalistic. It lives in a strange no-man's land between hope and despair, ultimately emerging just slightly on the side of hope. Before Seri crosses back into South Korea, she and Jung-hyuk's men stop for a while by an empty house in the DMZ, abandoned since the Korean War. Seri sees a broken prayer bowl, and the men explain that they never touch it. It was left with hopes for a soldier to return home, most likely by his mother. Seri wonders if the two ever saw each other again, asking, If I wait and pray desperately, will I eventually be able to meet the person I miss? Jung-hyuk replies that waiting is the only option. You have to wait in order to keep living, he says. This explicit connection of their difficult situation to the tragedy of families who were scattered and lost to each other by the Korean War is a powerful condemnation of the state of things, not just of the division itself, but of the impossibility of healing and reconciliation across such a highly militarized, surveilled, and rigid border. Seri remembers this conversation again at the end of the drama, once Jung-hyuk has returned home after promising her that one day he'll see her again in Switzerland. She keeps going there, every year, and one day he finds her again. They live that way, meeting once a year for two idyllic weeks, presumably for the rest of their lives. You know, there's these these visits between separated family members that have happened a few times, and it's, you can, uh, you know, read about these. I'll see if I can find a link to an article that describes how these these meetings are, you know, like basically it's negotiated between the two governments. And then there's like a set period of time where people can, you know, go to this place where they can see each other and meet each other for, you know, like a few hours. And I think that's really what's being reflected here, right, is that these are the only ways that people can like in real life, people have been separated by this border. They have this like very small, limited amount of time. It happens after many years it's possible that in the intervening years, your family member might have passed away and like you'll never see them again. So there's like this constant uncertainty. There's this constant. That's why no matter how many times they say goodbye to each other, mm. it always hurts just as much because any time could be the last time. And it's not like, you know, when somebody goes to study abroad, you know, for two years in like England or whatever. It's it's really like you you don't know when you might see each other again. And even when they do see each other again, I think like that's very a deliberate choice to make that like a very short time that is that is something that they're constantly waiting and hoping for because it really does reflect that reality. Yeah. I feel like yeah. I've just been going on and on. I'm sorry. No. No. It's you just you know all of this. Yeah. It's so big. Like the feelings are so big. And once you start getting into feeling the feelings once again, it's fine there's nothing to say because it's a kind of, this is a fictional story, mm. but it's also a reality for so many people. And when you think about that. And the reality is so much less beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, real life doesn't have so many happy endings or even <laughs> one happy ending. Yeah. Or a half happy ending. I mean, if you were dissatisfied with like the fictional ending, you got the real life ending. <laughs> oh, that yes, okay, that's a real happy ending. I I do also feel like this this somewhat of a happy ending, like the fact that it's only available to Jung Hyuk and Seri because she's 
insanely wealthy and can literally do whatever she wants because she has so much money um, and, and her time is her own because she's a CEO. And he is in a very privileged high position in the military and he comes from a powerful family that has sway in the North Korean government. That's the only reason that they can actually see each other. And if they were anyone else, both of them, this wouldn't have been possible. And like that, that really kind of just makes the point, right? Of like, for most people, there would be no hint of a happy ending. I mean, they would never even have gotten this far. They would probably wouldn't even have lived this long, you know, to to even like for her to escape and come back. And, and so like, it's like a romantic fantasy in some ways. But I also think that, like, that's part of the point that the drama is making. I do think the drama kind of loses its, uh, it kind of loses itself in the inevitable pull of capitalism and materialism. Like, <laughs> it can, loses can its you way a little bit. Explain that a bit more. What you mean by that? Um, there is like glorification of wealth and and sort of this really. You know, I mean, most K-dramas do this where there is it's a part of the wish fulfillment of a lot of romantic stories, right? Where you part of the fantasy of a Cinderella story is not the man. It's the position that that man is going to give you if you marry him, right? Like it's the wealth and the power and the fancy things and the nice house and the and the social status that you will get by being with that person. And I'm not dissing that I mean I think that's like a perfectly legitimate fantasy to have this isn't real life it's fantasy but I did find it a little bit jarring in the context of this story where like once they come back to South Korea there is this very like self-indulgent enjoyment of just like the trappings of the material wealth that Sari enjoys and it like well on one hand it's kind of showing you how only super privileged people can have some kind of happy ending at the same time it's really just like enjoying it was also ppl provides oh yeah definitely <laughs> the ppl yeah i mean all the ppl that they weren't able to do while the characters were in north korea it had to come out all at once right so yeah i was actually thinking of um top star Ubek. the fact that when he was on the island nobody really took his like stardom very seriously it was a very simple life and he had to mm-hmm. like just like let go of all of his ego and like his heart at not being recognized <laughs> and just be like you know kind of get used to the life there and enjoy it but like when he comes out of there like when he goes back to his life he's still the top star and mm-hmm. with all of the materialistic trapping and it, it, I don't know why I was just reminded of that um, because it's it's that whole thing. Like, you don't know what a big deal I am, which was like Yun City's whole thing. You guys have no idea what a big deal I am. <laughs> so like right, the story right. sets up that second half really well. <laughs> that makes me wonder, do you think this you could have told the same story if Yun City were not a chibber? I was just like, thinking that. Did she have to be a Chibulhead? She has to be this. if we were going to get that ending. If we were okay mm-hmm. with an ending where the two of them did not ever meet again, then she didn't need to be. But mm-hmm. if we were going to get that ending, that could only happen if she was a Chibulhead. The only reason that they're able to get together is because they can no longer communicate, right? So she has to use her position to create this scholarship that always has, you know, like in Switzerland, that always has this like event once a year. <laughs> 
so that he can find out about it and come there and meet her at the right time. I mean, it's like, like if she was a daughter of a chebul, she wouldn't have been able to do it. You, you, you know, like this position is like, ha, huh, sorry. That's going all the way to the end. Like I'm thinking even from the beginning, like would a non-chebul even have paraglided into North Korea? Not that like that was realistic, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, a non-chebul would be able to paraglide. I mean, it was supposed to be caught in a tornado. Nobody expected it oh, to true. be dumped in North Korea. That, that was not... <laughs> Any, it wasn't her intent that yeah. the, 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 you know, the equipment would take her there. Um, so, yeah, anybody <laughs> could have paraglided there. But, like, would they have had, like, the panache of Yoon Seri without her being... A, she could have been a top actress. Um, mm. She could have, you know, been... She like, would have I been recognized know. if she was a top actress. I think that is I a think good the, point. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things is, yes, the ending. I think the other thing is, like making her a really competent, confident woman. Mm. It needed mm. to be part of her character, regardless right. of like what her actual like job or position was. Like she needed to be a very confident someone who is like enough within herself. And self-sufficient, right? Yes. Yes. Right. And and like yeah, not afraid to like ask for things and demand things because mm. that's kind of what allowed her to like survive in the first few episodes and kind of like adapt and and sort of go toe to toe with and Jamiak. to be people savvy as well, right? Right. Ooh, right. Yeah. It is a very specific skill set, actually. Now that we're talking about it, yeah, she did have to be a chivalry. <laughs> Not just that, but like a successful CEO as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I was thinking, rather than thinking of the excursion to South Korea as a kind of exercise in capitalism, I was thinking if you look at this drama crash landing on you as an iteration of the same framework as a time travel drama i feel like that that section was that fish out of water kind of episode like saying faith or like queen in hyun's man or live up to your name where you have Mm. like people going both ways Mm. and then like the people from the past being like just absolutely awestruck by what exists in the future but I do like your reading better I think it's more accurate I I was just saying that as like every story where the hero masquerades as a poor person and then finally gets to show off all his wealth but like you said he got to do it (laughs) now you know who I am this is this is the person I am all of those cosmetics that you would you know you had contraband of and you were like this is so good my company made it it's (laughs) you know I created that it was just so cool (laughs) I mean I think all of these things are true at the same time yeah yeah absolutely they can five different interpretations are like all like valid to this point the fact is that they completely celebrated the 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 capitalistic uh, utopia that they built Mm -hmm. this version of um, South Korea into so yeah that's true too (laughs) yeah or as I put it in here um, the writing lightly satirizes the hypocrisies and corruption of the wealthy but the camera's eye looks upon their lifestyles with a naked desire that is verbalized when Jung Hyuk's men arrive in the south and openly marvel at the wonders of capitalism yeah exactly perfect so before we move on from your thesis, I also have some favorite passages which I have picked out. And can I can I read your writing to you? 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> it's a high compliment. <laughs> so this is towards the end of your chapter about crash landing. As Jonghyuk's men patrol at sunrise, one of them sings along to the South Korean national anthem that they can hear blasting across the border. When the others rib him for knowing the words, he replies, We hear it every time the sun rises and sets. Why wouldn't I have memorized it? This small moment emphasizes the physical and emotional closeness that exists alongside a practical and psychological gulf that is impossible to bridge. As with the broken prayer bowl and that family's unknown fate, the instability and anxiety of not knowing the fate of loved ones, of family left on opposite sides of the borders from each other, of men and boys who went to war and were never able to come home, hangs over the drama and paints even its most beautiful moments with melancholy. And while this drama makes the personal political rather than politicizing the personal the way the King Two Hearts does, it also operates in a revolutionary space. That of humanizing and equalizing the pain of Koreans in a way that, if not physically, at least emotionally, transcends the border. Given that emotion is as powerful a weapon of nation building as any other, this may end up being Crash Landing's most significant legacy. Mic drop. Thanks. I also like that sexual vibe, but I felt weird saying that. <laughs> oh, I've, I've got more than this. I just... Can, can I tell you my favorite section of um, Anissa's thesis? It's not from uh, this segment of her thesis. So um, before the segment, she talks about uh, the show One Night, Two Days and how the crew um, goes to um, exiled Korean communities. And they have moved for different reasons. They've been forced to move. They've moved because of economic reasons. But... It, it's been generations since they have moved. So one of uh, these are in Kazakhstan, um, and the other is in um, is it Cuba? Cuba. Yeah. And so they they're they're like the community there. Their culture has you know they they have sort of like um, blended a bit like from the local spaces where they live in, but they've also tried to hold on to their heritage. It's not quite Korean, but it's, you know, diaspora Korean. The interesting thing about um, Anissa's thesis, like when she goes into it, is that the the crew, like they have edited the whole thing with a lot of sympathy for these displaced people. Like um, at different points, like uh, both these communities, when they are um, sort of like hanging out with the crew, they uh, sing Arirang. Uh, which is like the national uh, song of South Korea. Um, but there is this particular line where she talks about how like the show has this sentiment towards these displaced people where, you know, they empathize with the pain of separation, of longing for the homeland. But um, it's also a kind of sympathy that doesn't extend to, it doesn't it talk doesn't about what their current... meaning, right? Exactly, like... So, so how Anissa puts it is the show, of course, focuses on the diaspora staying the diaspora. But like, what happens when they return to the home of their ancestors that they have been longing for? So her quote is, one night and two days, however, ignores those Koryo in who have physically returned and embraces only those who continue to be displaced, making no demands upon the state beyond the sentimental. Which I loved. This is such a great quote. And also, yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, we are okay to be 
sentimental about the displaced, the you know people in the diaspora, but it's so much harder to uh, live with the reality of them returning and mm. the politics of South Korea as we know it is very much about who's taking up our resources by coming from outside and just like it, there is this, it's it's not that simple anymore. It's not that straightforward anymore. They are not the distant, um, you know, cousins to be sympathized with, but like in their head, direct competitors for resources mm -hmm. within the country. And it's, yeah. And, and and if you look at the state of these, they call themselves Koryo-in or like these Korean Kazakhs and Korean Cubans, the ones who do return to South Korea live in these, you know, industrial areas and they do hard manual labor and they are systematically excluded because of Russian colonialism and where they lived. That would be Kazakhstan or because of, you know, living in Cuba for multiple generations and losing the language. They can no longer like read and write, you know, Hangul. So they're they're not like um, able to enter to assimilate into the economic structures of South Korea the way they are. And the state is not really interested in helping them out, even if it recognizes on an ideological level that like, oh yeah, these people were treated really badly and we owe them something, but it's not willing to actually like commit to owing them anything beyond recognition, which is why yeah. it's so much more convenient to just go to these places and be like, oh yeah, you know, like we're family, we lost each other. We still care about you. We recognize you. It kind of, it's kind of like, patting themselves on the back at the same time for, you know, giving that recognition <laughs> because it's, it's consequence free. Um, Absolutely. And to be fair, this is not like the only uh, part of society where this kind of thinking functions. Uh, if you guys have watched tomorrow, which we spoke about on a previous episode extensively, um, you have, you know, people who have got, gone through so much, the women who have gone through so much um, during the Japanese occupation, who were just like the comfort women, who, whose existence and suffering was ignored by Koreans yeah. um, for generations. It's, it's only recently that they are their stories are being told. But in terms of mm -hmm. um, actual solid, like forget reparations, even an apology, it was just so hard to ask for it's not I mean, they even still haven't had one yet. from the yeah exactly. exactly they're just waiting for everyone to die but so it's i mean this is like kind of this is the gone. the problem of being political is that a government apologizing it's not sufficient for it to be verbal if they make an apology that's acknowledging that they have responsibility and if they have responsibility it acknowledges that they then have to make reparations so right. well that's why when the queen uh Queen Elizabeth, when she went to India and she went to the site of the Jalanwala Bagh massacre, um, she did not apologize yeah. because just she like, did oh, not want to deal with the it? consequence. Yeah, she was like, we regret that this happened. But it's there's no apology because then that apology will come with responsibility and accountability exactly. that they don't want. And it's the same reason why like First Nations people in all of the countries, like, you know, in Australia, well, actually, no. No, Australia is, yes, I think on that. I think New Zealand's sort of working on it. New Zealand, Wait, I might uh, be wrong. finally. No, no, you're right. This this was okay. a piece that I was reading about that New Zealand's actually working on um, providing reparations to First Nation people. Again, like this is kind of under the work. So we, we'll see how it goes over the next few years, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and I mean, even an apology doesn't really... Canada apologized for the way it's treated um, First Nations people in 2018. And they stopped but there, like, right? 
that was it. Yeah, I mean, it was just an <laughs> apology. It was literally just, you know, an apologies for residential schools. But I mean, there hasn't really been any kind of reparations or, I mean, the, the genocide yeah. is ongoing. Yeah. It's just taking a different form now. And the now. fact that, like, the Canada thing, for example, I don't know if we're getting a little off topic, but it it sets a precedent for being for a government being able to just say sorry and end it there. Like, that's not what a government yeah. should be. And I mean, I, I just want to clarify, like, in this situation, the South Korean government is not responsible for what happened to these people, right? Like, right, this right. is something that was done by, like, Stalin and, you know, it, as a result of Japanese colonialism. And mm. so I don't, I don't think this is quite the same. Like, there's not an apology required from them, but there is, like, a difference, you know, in between what they are saying they care about versus right. the actual actions of the state in terms of, like, just, like, economic investment in these people's future mm -hmm. and, like, actually providing them support once they do come back home and are actually, like, in need of something material. Although I do wonder if it's part of the bigger problem well, the thing that Korea is going through right now, which is sort of contending with, you know, immigration and having oh, absolutely. immigrant populations and how to live with it without that sounding too cold. But like, is it all part of the same thing? It's that bigger idea of like the nation and who you consider to be part of us and who you consider to be them and then like what is owed to who is considered quote unquote us you know like if you as a nation claim a group of people you have a different duty to them versus if you don't claim a group of people and and then, and then like they're also in this moment of transition of like okay so we used to be a very homogenous or we thought of ourselves as a homogenous nation of like one type of people and now we are becoming multicultural, but like there's nothing really in the government apparatus that is really ready to take on such a rapid change in the demographics of the country. And so there's like this tension point. Um, and also like the nation state model is extremely flawed and it doesn't really work. And yet like everybody around the world is now has been put into this model as and, and we treat it as if it's like an absolute that has existed for centuries and that is like the only way but it's only like five or 600 years old. Like nobody had nation states before a few countries in Europe went to a bunch. They'd had a bunch of wars and then they decided this is going to be, you know, the way that we live from now on. Um, anyway, we're, we're really getting into like we wanted to talk about. <laughs> I don't know how to get us back on track. Happy endings. But yeah. Happy endings. Okay. Well, let's talk about the real life happy ending. That is Hyunbin and Sonia Jin. It's so nice that we get to do this three years down the line after they've also had, like, a baby. You know, I put in, in our original, like, so we originally were planning to do this in 2020. And in that document, I, like, showed a YouTube video of them doing one of those, you know, those, like, Netflix YouTube videos of the actors playing games or, like, interacting or oh, doing yeah. an interview together. Uh, and, my, and my note was, like, I usually don't ship actors in real life, but, like, just look at these two. <laughs> and not knowing, of course, what was coming. <laughs> Yeah. tickles me may they be happy and healthy for a long time and if it's possible that any of our listeners uh, don't know about it Sonia Jin and uh, Hyunbin have been friends for years years and years and um, we don't know when at some point <laughs> I suppose it, it grew into more and you know now we have uh, the couple of the industry and it's just that they are so 
damn sweet. And also, like, I cannot stress this enough. Part of it is their age. Like, mm-hmm. I was going to say, even in real life, these are full grown, mature adults with separate, successful lives. They are full unto themselves and they chose each other and like it, everything just perfectly fit. And that is just so and it just like really gives you a lot of confidence that they will last. You know, I mean, you yeah. never know. Obviously, you just yeah, never know, course. obviously. And, and you don't know the inner workings of anybody's relationship. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, all those caveats put in place. But like, I really feel like these two are, you know, they've known each other for years. You know, they're experienced veterans of the industry. They're relatively equal in status, which, you know, if they're not, that can cause tensions. Mm -hmm. They also both are just like really good at like keeping their private lives private and not not being like part of drama. And like, you know, the 20 years or whatever they've been in the industry, like generally they have stayed pretty drama free. And so like either they or their management are really good at like kind of keeping them out of the, the maelstrom <laughs> of public opinion in a way that like gives me hope also. Um, and they also just like seem like really mature and lovely people. So um, yeah, mm-hmm. we wish the best for them. We do. Um, yeah. One other thing, like I said, that their age like of the real actors is is like such a, I don't know, such a nice thing. But also um, how, how close they are in age to each other. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, it's like, I mean, when you hear about celebrity pairings, um, especially like when the men are in like their, you know, late 30s, late 40s, it's rarely with women their own age or close to their own age. And that's, that's true. just become like an understood, like it's just an accepted norm. So, yeah. Yeah. On a meta level, I guess all of this is meta, but like, <laughs> I just feel like knowing that these two ended up together in real life and that they're happy and healthy and doing well also just like makes watching the drama like an even more enjoyable experience because mm-hmm. you you got the happy ending in real life, even if you couldn't get, you know, the ending that you wanted for them in the drama. And like, also, I know this is the wrong place to put this, but this soundtrack is just <laughs> so gorgeous. I... I think after my after my sister was done um, watching this, we were just listening to the soundtrack for like six months, <laughs> <laughs> just in the car at home while we were cooking. Like, it really does a good job of like underscoring the romance and the melancholy and the mm. sweetness and the tragedy and the emotion and like the epic feeling of. Like everything about the show is just so well done. And and like the music is a really big part of that. Like it's just deserves awards, honestly. Agreed. As we're wrapping up, there's just one last thing that I want to say. Um, the writer, uh, the North Korean defector who joined the writing team, his name was uh, Kwok Munwan. And I, I just wanted his name to be part of this episode. That's all. Um so happy you guys could join us for this one. I'm really happy that we finally got to do this episode. Yes. <laughs> you know, I was feeling sad about how late it was, but I think this was actually the right time. I so. agree. This, this was exactly yeah. the right time. Yeah, I think like a lot of the things that we've covered here is stuff only Anissa could cover, especially with her in-depth, like her expertise on this topic and the geopolitics and the fact that two years of your life went into writing this thesis. Yeah, I just spent so long on this and I wanted to like share it with more people than just the random people that, 
either the people who love me and <laughs> care about my work who I can force to read this or just the random people who are going to stumble across it on like the yeah. Duke Library <laughs> database of theses <laughs> and dissertations. I mean, let's like, not <laughs> understate the power of your thesis because we've actually made some really good friends because uh, through your thesis and that's been really nice. That is a gift. Mm -hmm. That is such a gift. Yeah. You can find us on Twitter at Dramas Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at Anisa Khalifa underscore. You can find me at Not Now Saya. And you can find me, Borma, at The Drama Notes. You can also find us on Instagram at Dramas Overflowers underscore. And you can email us at Dramas Overflowers at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook. Just go search for Dramas Over Flowers. And our website is, surprise, surprise, dramasoverflowers.net. <laughs> our newsletter is linked below. Um, sign up for like occasional notifications <laughs> and other announcements and also like annual freebies. <laughs> yes. And Dramas Over Flowers is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. And, and that's Thank it. Thank you, guys. That's all. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, okay, now I have to go get... Sorry, my, my computer's about to die. One second. Uh, shall I stop? Yeah, no, because we have to wait for her to come back. I'm afraid about her recording. Well, we have the Zoom one. Not she has the Zoom one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot. Damn it. Uh, Come back, Arisa. Uh, <laughs> All right. Run, Kharifa, uh, run. <laughs> oh, that was good. Quick. Done it. Did we make it? Is it alive? Okay. It's alive. Oh, it was scary.